Hey, this is Melissa Green, and you are listening to Grace Point Church's podcast. Our vision statement at Grace Point is loving God, loving self, and loving others. If you want to find out more, visit gracepoint.net. So I want to talk a little, about, a, a little bit about prayer, and then I want us to spend some time actually in prayer. And Pastor Melissa will come back and talk about what she and Pam have put together for us to do today. But I want to look at a text. Mark the first chapter, verses 35 through 39. Read that verse. We'll come back to one verse there in just a moment. But quickly, I just want to walk through something that's been very important to me as I think about prayer and the place prayer plays in my life. And if you've had a rough time or a wrestling match with how prayer fits into the frame of your life, I am very sympathetic to that. I have been in vocational ministry for 30 years. And there are lots of parts of vocational ministry that come very easily to me because it was what I was born to do. Um, and, and the part of vocational ministry that is about the business of praying for other people has always come very easily for me. Prayer personally has never been the easiest thing for me. It's been very difficult for me to turn my brain off and to lose my mind, as my therapist told me. To lose my mind for a bit, um, if you like spiritual director better, my spiritual director told me, lose your mind a little bit, and it, it's never been the easiest thing. Scriptures like this have helped me in my own journey with prayer. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Just read that again. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. There was a season in my life with a very narrow view of prayer that I felt like I had to wake up really early and find an isolated place or I wasn't praying like Jesus. It's a very narrow view, and it's missing the depth and the richness of this text. But Jesus went out to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, he couldn't even get away from them, even to pray. When they found him, they said, everyone's looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well. I, I know everybody's looking for me, and that's not the half of it. We must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. And almost with resignation, <laughs> Maybe resignation is too strong a term because I think Jesus was positive about this, but there's a bit of a sigh here. When he was doing what he wanted to do, he went out to an isolated place and was alone, and they found him. Anybody know that feeling? They always find you, don't they? If you're, I told the first service, if, you're, if you can't find your child, just go to the bathroom. <laughs> they will find you. I, I was trying to study this morning. Nina was here early with me, and I could not get away from her. And I went in the bathroom with my notes, and as soon as I got in there, and that, that's Jesus. And Jesus says, I know they're looking for me. And then the resignation. That's why I came. I can't get away from this. I'm not supposed to get away from this. Look at the last verse, verse 39. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee. So 
He leaves the isolated place, travels throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons, doing what he does. So our text this morning finds Jesus in a place called Capernaum. Capernaum is a small town, or it was a small town, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. According to Luke's gospel, at least Luke's gospel, this was the home of Peter. I mean, it's, it's a notable town because this is the home of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, four biggies in the life of Jesus, the four most renowned disciples. It was also, and probably because of that, it was also the town that Jesus selected to serve as the center of his ministry in Galilee. Uh, Capernaum actually ceased to exist somewhere around the 11th century. Capernaum, in an actual functional form, hasn't existed for almost a thousand years. And, and from what we know of Capernaum, Josephus, the respected first century historian, said there were two to three hundred villages in the Galilee. We call it the Galilee. Um, two to three hundred villages, probably average size, 1,500 to 2,000 people, and Capernaum was no standout amongst them. But because James, John, Peter, and Andrew were there, this was Jesus' kind of launching pad. This was his center node of his ministry. Jesus would, in his, if his ministry were three years long, some argue it was one year, um, best bet it was probably three, three and a half years. If it were three to three and a half years, he spent two years in Galilee and a huge chunk of time in Capernaum. Now, this morning's text, for your information, locates itself in the first two to three weeks, maybe the first two months, but very possibly the first two to three weeks of Jesus' ministry. So he's right out of the chute. He is just becoming Jesus in terms of how we perceived him and how the world recognized him. Backing up in the text, verse 21 says that Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum every Sabbath day. It was very intentional. He went to the town every Sabbath day, and he went into the synagogue, and he taught the people, and verse 21 says they were amazed at his teachings. So before he did anything in terms of ministry, um, miracles, healings, all of that, he was in the synagogue, and the people were really taken by his preaching. They were so taken that he began to draw crowds because there was this intangible but definite difference in the way he spoke. No man spake like he spake. Verse 29 says, on one of those particular Sabbaths, after he left the synagogue, he went over to the house of Simon and Andrew, and Simon was married, and his mother-in-law was very sick, and Jesus healed her. And as Jesus healed her, immediately the message began to diffuse and spread out into the surrounding area. And verse 32 says that the word spread so quickly that by sunset of that evening, many sick people were being brought to Jesus. So these aren't just sick people who can come on their own. These are seriously sick people because they're being brought. You remember the woman who was carried by, or the man who was carried by his four friends on a bed? So people are bringing the sickest of the sick to Jesus, verse 33 says, and a huge crowd of people from all over Capernaum gathered outside the door to watch. So you have tons of sick people, their attendant family members, and then a huge crowd pressing around Simon's house to watch this spectacle. Verse 34 says that Jesus did not retreat from that, but Jesus was moved with compassion, moved deep in his bowels, and he healed great numbers of sick people who had many different kinds of diseases. 
Verse 32 says, they began bringing to him all who were ill. I want you just to stop for a minute and think with me. They began, began. He had had a 30-year run as a carpenter, as a normal guy, but then it began. They began bringing to him all who were ill. Verse 33 says that there was no going back now for the whole city was at the door. I was thinking this morning about how very busy and pressed Jesus must have been. I was thinking about his life and I was thinking about the fullness of that house, the fullness of his own heart, what must have been running like ticker tape through his own brain as he thought about continents unexplored, countries untouched, people yet unreached. And this morning I was to some degree identifying not after a busy week, but after a busy life, and a very full life, and a very pressed life, from the back door to the front door and every window, people peering in. I was identifying with those words they began bringing to him. Terry, my friend Terry Johnson and I were talking, and I was teasing because we hadn't had lunch. We like to have lunch. He's a, uh, a friend that I enjoy, and he took a new job, and Terry, I thought about you. They began bringing. Your life has changed. Right, Karen? Oh, yes. And I was reflecting on all of the people and all of the places and all of the things that life brings to me. Most of us wear multiple hats in our lives, and each of these hats, each of these roles demand that we do something for a particular group of people or we be something for a particular group of people. And I want you to understand that what I just said about myself and what I said about Terry, um, I don't think my business is exceptional in its nature when compared to the members of our church family. When I look at my life, I didn't know yesterday morning that I was going to drive 500 miles to Georgia round trip, but that's the story of my life. Finally found a car for a 16-year-old, and it was right, and you do what you got to do, and I knew with my schedule that I had to get, and I had to get there, even though I had promised Nina something else, and you pack a little girl in the front seat, and nine hours in the car, and when we, get, and when we finally get home, she reminds me of what I promised her, and by that time, it's 7.30, and I remember what I had promised another friend who's in town that I really needed to be with and wanted to be with. And I remember that I got to get up at 2 o'clock on Sunday morning to finish a sermon. And I remember that I had two papers due on Tuesday that I haven't even touched yet. And I remember that my son was in a golf tournament, and this morning I had to get him to the golf course at 7.10, which, by the way, he's leading by six strokes, but I digress. <laughs> And I don't think my life is exceptional. I think the members of this church family definitely understand this kind of life. And I'm not whining about it. And I frankly wouldn't want it any different. But then I thought about my life, and you just fill in the blanks for your life. <clears throat> I'm a pastor to a congregation of hundreds of people, I am a husband, I'm a father to two incredibly demanding kids. 
I'm a son to two incredible parents that live 275 too many miles away. I'm a brother to a sister. I'm a brother to another brother, and I miss them so much. We've spread out too far, and I so wish we could recapture when we were together. And thanks to the folk who gave me the Steelers ticket, because that means my brother gets to come over in a few Monday nights, and I'll see him for the first time in, geez, six months. I'm friend to people like Buck Lawson that I try to call at least once a week. We've been best friends since fifth grade, South Elementary. And every morning I awake, and I'll, I'll read a little bit of this because I didn't have enough time this week to prepare it and memorize it because I have lots of people looking in the window, just like you. Every morning I awake with each of these groups either waiting at the foot of my bed, sending data to my phone, or like my Alzheimer's grandmother pressing on my mind and heart because she still remembers my name and I haven't seen her in three months. I think she still remembers my name. I react daily to a huge mixture of emails, text messages, phone calls, whinings, meetings, pastors, board members, teachers of my children, and I love it. And somewhere in the midst of all of that, I have to read, study, and write because every Sunday, you good people deserve my words to be fresh, inspiring, and relevant. And somewhere I got to fit in an in-depth Wednesday night study with some really smart people who expect it to be right and a Tuesday night class that's teaching seminary-level material to lay people who want to know. And every time a day ends, I am faced with the fact that I didn't nearly get it all done, and I didn't leave a bunch of widgets on my desk. I left a stack of human need that should have been done yesterday here on my desk. And I realize every night when I go to bed, there's still sick folk to call, and the light bulb that nobody in the house, in the house can reach that's been needing replaced for two weeks and then, dadgummit, I want to hit something because I'm trying my best to get home, but by the time I get there, I find out that Nina has just gone to sleep. And you look at her, and, and cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. Please hear me. I'm not complaining. I love this life. And you guys probably love yours. I feel very privileged to live it, and I don't think it's the exception. Change the names and roles, and I've just described a lot of your lives. Some of you are busier than I am. Some of you are less. I have been less busy before, and I probably, hopefully, will be again, but life has its seasons, its ebbs and flows, and when you're 46, Mac, this is the hay-making stage of life. So I get it. But between following Nina to the store on her bicycle and rushing back to the house to sit with a couple who's already in my front room whose life is about to break apart because their little girl who was on a bicycle yesterday, it seemed, is now 15 and pregnant. Man, I stay on the move. They began bringing to him. Life brings it to you, doesn't it? They began bringing to him, and this is what I wanted to say to you, and then we'll spend some time in prayer. As life brought it on to Jesus, in the midst of that Messiah's busyness, as things were ramping up more precipitously than I can even understand there in Galilee, 
Jesus teaches us this morning a very valuable lesson, and it's why even coming to church on a Sunday morning is a biorhythm of prayer for people like you, Terry, people like you. The first eight words of today's text place Jesus in the early morning hours after a long day and night of ministry. I love those eight words. And I want you to understand what happened the night before. He began in earnest his full ministry there in Galilee, and he looked out of the throng like this, pressing to get in the door, and there were mothers who brought limp little bodies in their arms. There were no insulin pumps for type 2 diabetes then. There, there weren't pediatric oncologists. There were just limp little girls in mama's arms and a crowd watching it. And somewhere that night, and this is a good reminder, if the Messiah didn't have a Messiah's complex, you shouldn't either. Because somewhere in the middle of it, Sister Lucy, prayer warrior, somewhere in the middle of it, he became tired enough in his human body, he looked at the crowd, and Bob the Bible says he sent them home. How do you do that? He looked at the man with the limp little boy draped across his arm and said, I can't do anything else tonight. And the crowd, forlorn, confused. I mean, maybe not so much if you were way in the back of the line because you can extrapolate. We're not going to get to the front of the line. But what about the dude that was next in line? Go home. So... He sends them home, which is hard for me to wrap my mind around, and yet we do it every day, don't we? We send them home. Last night I looked at Nina and I said, I did promise you that, sis. <laughs> I did. And I thought, oh, Lord, move her heart with compassion, and he didn't. <laughs> In the midst of his busyness, I read these words. The next morning, Jesus awoke long before daybreak. And I want to tell you something. When I read those words, thinking about what he had just shut down the night before for Elaine, I mean, if you send a man home with tears running down his face and a little boy who may not make it to morning, of course you wake up early in the morning. Man, with the stuff we got on our mind and the kids we're trying to raise and the life we're trying to get through, anybody here besides me know that psychological circadian rhythm of waking up between 2.30 and 3? It's 2.30 to 3, and for all, the, for all of us fellas 46 and over, I'm not talking about that. I know we have to wake up early in the morning now, more than we used to, but there's another biorhythm. And that biorhythm is you, you wake up you, you sent it all home last night. You broke her heart last night. You broke their heart. You sent them home. You sent life home. You know you're not doing the job nearly as well as you wanted to do it when you came into it, but there's only 24 hours in a day. You send it home, and of course he woke up early the next morning. Of course he did. I know that wake up. It's not that cloudy wake up. It's that wake up that pulls you up off of your pillow almost in a sweat. And if it's not that arresting, you wake up at 2.30 in that groggy, semi-sleep state, 
and, it, and you think to yourself, because you know that you need sleep, and you know you don't get nearly enough, and you think to yourself, oh man, oh, don't start thinking. You know that feeling? Don't start thinking. And you hear the cogs over here start turning, and you're like, no, 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 and you start, I start counting sheep, trying to do something mindless, because the cogs are turning. And you know, one, no matter how tired you are, when those cogs come together and click, you're done, and your mind starts turning, and you might as well get up. I start counting sheep. I'm like, oh, just count sheep. Keep the cock. I start counting sheep, and I start thinking, oh, I'm a shepherd. People are sheep. Oh, I got to count something else. Now, I'll end with this. The next morning, Jesus awoke long before daybreak, and I think to myself, well, of course he did. Because when he laid down that night, on the back of his eyelids were the needs of people yet unreached. At the end of the previous day, there were still people left unhealed, lives untouched, needs unmet. Beyond the ones who walked away that night, there were other people, other towns, other regions, other countries, for crying out loud, he knew about other continents. Ours wouldn't even get the gospel for 14 or 15 centuries in the form that we know it. He was God in flesh sent to save the world, and of course he beat the alarm clock and the rooster. Of course he awoke long before daybreak, because how do you stay asleep with that kind of responsibility on your shoulders? So awake he did, with life coming at him full bore. He awoke, but not for the reason that I normally do. And not for the reason I would have expected reading the text. He awoke with all of that on his shoulders and against the grain, counterintuitive, what few of us would have expected and what few of us do, with the speed and the force of life hitting him from all sides. He woke up, scholars say, if we read the text right, it was probably between three and four in the morning because it was the only way he could get away. And with all of his life and need here, he went in the opposite direction. And he found an isolated place because he knew in the midst of his action if he didn't find stillness, he would be no good for all of that. And God lived a human life. I don't know everything there is to know about prayer, very little actually. But when God lived a human life with the world and the continents pressing on his shoulders, he got up at 3.30 in the morning, looked at it all, and went and found an isolated place. The old song said on Mount Olive's sacred brow, Jesus spent the night in prayer. He's a pattern for us all, all alone. There are days I'd like to be all alone with Christ my Lord. I could tell him all my troubles, all alone. All alone down on my knees. All alone with Christ my Lord. And the Bible says that he was there alone and he prayed. He opened his heart to the Father and he prayed. 
And it didn't say he prayed for the little limp boy in the arms of his father. It didn't say he limped or he prayed for continents yet unreached. It doesn't say what he prayed about. I don't know what he prayed about. But he prayed. And before too long, I love the text. The Bible says the disciples found him. Well, of course they did because it will always find you. It will always find you. Even Jesus couldn't get far enough away that they couldn't find him. And there at the bathroom door... And the Lord looks up and Peter says, we're looking for you. And he said, I knew you were. And he doesn't resent them and say, can I not? Could you not? He looks at them and they say, Lord, there's a lot waiting on you. And not begrudgingly, he looks at them and says, of course there is. But Jesus fit into the biorhythm of his spirituality. He fit into his life a place of prayer. And I wanted Pastor Mel to come and Pam and Mel worked on this. I wanted just to kind of do today just a few little exercises of prayer in the last 10 or 15 minutes here of our service that we could do together. And I would encourage all of you, whether it's in the seat or coming forward or whatever, she'll explain to you some of these things. I'd like for you just to, for us as a church, just to find a place to still and quiet ourselves in the midst of all the stuff we do. Jesus said, my house shall be called the house of... So let's do that today. Tell them about the stations you have for them. So one of the most important things that he's said today is the need for space in our lives. And so we wanted to create some space for you this morning in the last 15 minutes or so of service. Space for you to get in tune with yourself and in tune with God and give you some forms, um, some practices to do that. So there's going to be four specific stations this morning. There's going to be one right here at the altar where we will have elders and our prayer attendants here ready to anoint you with oil. And they can pray over you with words if needed for any need in your life, but also simply you coming and standing before them, allowing them to anoint you. That anointing is an act of prayer in itself. So that's one station. And, and I want to say... Also, we don't have the old mourner's bench style, but some of us come from traditions. Nothing scratches the itch of my soul better sometime than just going down front. I, I don't know why. And in the first service, I probably won't do it again in the second, but I needed to just lean across the altar. Anybody, you come from traditions where you just lay across the altar and you just say, here I am, Lord. And man, I needed that in the first service. And I just laid across these steps. So if you want to kneel, I'm just saying you can do that too. Yes, you can do that here. Or there's a lot of space in our new setup um, in the room. So you can do that off to the side or here. But the attendants will be here to anoint you with oil as well. The second station we have is the votive candle station. And that's located on either side of the stage. And this station is for you to come and you are lighting a candle in prayer for someone in need, someone in your life that you're praying for. This is a, a prayer of intercession. And so as you light a candle, you're lighting it for them. And again, no words have to be spoken at this station. You can just go simply light the candle and it's between you and God what that candle is for. It's a candle of hope. So you can come to that station on either side. Third, we wanted to do um, a giving station this morning. We didn't pass the plates earlier for our offering. We chose that we wanted to make it a form of prayer and a form of worship. So one of the stations that you can do this morning is move to one of the giving boxes and give in your tithe and offering. 
and, and those are available and to I you. And I would say to that end, that, that felt a little odd to me at first when Mel talked about that. She even said, I wonder if we shouldn't just always have a time of prayer built into our service where people can do these things and giving could be a part of that. I, I had to wrap my mind around that. But when she said, let's just give in the midst of that, I thought, prayer? And then I remembered the Bible says that Jesus went up to the temple at the time of worship. And he went into the temple. Now think about all the things we do in the temple. He went into the temple and the Bible said he wanted to watch them. You know what he did? He sat down across from the offering box and across the way from it. He didn't want to get right up next to it because that's a discreet thing. But he sat down where he could see the offering box. Now they're sacrificing animals and priests are doing their thing and people are talking about scripture and they might be singing and praying. Jesus goes at the time of worship and he sits down and instead of observing the priest or observing the sacrifice, he watches the offering box and interestingly, the Bible says that he watched how they gave. He didn't watch what they gave, he watched how they gave. And I don't know all that's in that, but there's something in that. And that's the story where he kept watching and watching and finally a widow came by with two mites and when he heard those two little pennies hit the bottom of that offering box the Bible said he stood up and said I have something to say so it's appropriate that that would be a part of our prayer today and the final station we have is located in the back on either side and this is our ancient prayer station for me back in 2006 I lost or my family lost my 32 year old brother-in-law to cancer and left my sister a widow and to be very honest and frank with you, my prayers ran out. I had no more words. I had a lot of doubts and a lot of questions, and I had no more words for God, and I didn't know what to do. And it was at that time that I came across a prayer while reading by Julian of Norwich, written sometime in the 1300s, and it said this, God of your goodness, give me yourself, for you are enough to me, and I can ask for nothing less that is to your glory. And if I ask for anything less, I shall still be in want, for only in you have I all. It goes on to say, all shall be well, and all shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. I needed these words when I couldn't find my own. And so we've printed out four different prayers from the first century for you to go back and to read or to take home. We actually printed out two different versions, a pretty cursive version that maybe is a little hard to read for some. So we printed out the second as well. So there's four different prayers, eight different cards on the back. You can go read one at the station and then come back to your seat or you could take one home with you. These can be yours. And so the main thing that I wanna say is that take your time with this. You can go to any one of the stations in any order. You can just pick one of the stations and go to that or you can go to all four but we want you to have space for you right now and I think the best place for us to start is to close our eyes Ian Crone told me a couple years ago prayer is about union not transactions and so maybe we begin in our seats just with our eyes focused eyes closed and our hearts focused on our union with God be present to this moment and then we choose to surrender I'm going to ask our prayer attendants to come as you're just simply breathing for a moment. And when you are ready, you can come. We're not going to sing. We're just going to play over you. Prayer and I would, 
I would encourage you, as you just kind of wait still for a moment, I would encourage you, on one hand, find that place of prayer, like the altar for us Pentecostals and Baptists, Nazarenes. Find that place that's comfortable for you. Catholic, Episcopal, you might feel more comfortable with votive candles. I would encourage you to find that place of comfort. That's certainly prayer. I would also encourage you to stretch yourself a bit. Feel what it feels to lean across an old mourner's bench and to open your heart to God. Go light a candle if you've never lit one before. Be anointed with oil. James 5 said, if any are sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church. Let them anoint them with oil. And the prayer of faith would save the sick. Raise them up. God only knows what all of that means, but open yourself to that. If you've never been anointed with oil before, if you've never ever read a prayer before written by someone else and that feels odd to you, that's exactly what you do every Sunday when you sing songs that other people have written. Those are prayers. Join with the communion of saints. So I would encourage you with Pastor Mel, sit for a moment, but not too long, and let's move out, move into the discomfort you very well might find the comfort of God there. Let's pray now for a little bit together. We're going to continue to leave the stations open, but I wanted to read this benediction over us as we close. One of our elders sent it to me a week ago. So if you're in your seats, would you just close your eyes? Here I am in the presence of a presence who transcends, surpasses, overflows, and exceeds every attempt at definition, description, and even conception. Here you are, whoever you are, however similar or dissimilar you are to my preconceived notions of you. May the real I and the real you become present to one another here and now. May the real I and the real you become present to one or one another here and now. Would you say amen? Amen. Please continue in this sweet moment. You are dismissed. We hope you have a lovely week. And if you want to continue praying, please know that everything remains open. <laughs>